Thank you, Trish. I I was deeply moved by that. Um, Trish, in her gracious humility, uh, doesn't always speak of some of the things that she's had to go through. But a year, about a year ago, she went through brain surgery, and um, the problem that she was dealing with had often robbed her of her ability to sing because of the nerves in her face. And so, for her to sit at the piano and sing is a uh, work of God. And I know that you still struggle, and sometimes are able to sing, sometimes you're not. And so I was uh, just deeply moved to hear you sit and play and sing about how your soul is well through it all. So thank you, Trish, for ministering to us in music today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving uh, during the time of Thanksgiving, I was reflecting on our church and I was able to write down five things that I am thankful for whenever it comes to Murphy Road. I'm thankful, first of all, for the way that we care for one another. And I'm seeing us improve in this way, particularly in our life group ministries, as I see our life groups taking time to be a part of each other's life and to care for one another and to really reach out to one another during the various ups and downs of life. That's church. That's part of what church does. We, we care about each other. We walk through life with one another, and so I'm thankful for that. Secondly, I'm, I'm thankful for the commitment that our church has to extend the gospel throughout the world. Last year, uh, we were able to give well over $100,000 to various missions, causes here and abroad. And for a church our size, that's a large financial commitment. And I'm so thankful for the generosity, for the vision that our church has to continue sharing the gospel and moving outward with our ministry. In fact, uh, this week we were able to begin a partnership with the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention and a ministry called Pan-Asian Outreach, where we now have Brent and Savannah Sorrells, who are missionaries to the Vietnamese population, primarily the Vietnamese Buddhist population that lives in the Murphy-Wiley-Saxe area. They are missionaries from our church to that group, uh, which makes up about 20% of Murphy, Texas, the Vietnamese Buddhist population. So I'm thankful for these steps that we're making in advancing the gospel and reaching out to people at their point of need. Thirdly, I'm thankful for the love that you all as a church have for God. I pray frequently that we as a church will love God with all of our heart and soul because that's that's really where Christian growth begins whenever you begin truly loving the Lord, the things of the Lord, wanting to be in His presence. Amazing things begin happening in your life. I also want to thank you for the love that this church has for the Word of God, for the Bible. We have a commitment here that whenever we gather for worship, we look at the Bible. Whenever you gather in your life groups, uh, open the Bible. You teach from the Bible as I walk the halls during the life group hours. I'm so grateful to God whenever I see our church praying together opening their Bibles together, and reading what God has spoken to us in His Word. And then fifth, I I wrote down that I'm thankful to God 
for the friendships that we share here at Murphy Road. I, I think about Gobble Fest, which took place, what, about three weeks ago? And as we were involved in that event, watching people laugh together, watching the genuine friendships, watching our children play out on a playground and people taking pictures and having fun. And I'm like, this is church. This is, this is what it's supposed to look like whenever we, we just enjoy some time with our friends as a church. And I'm thankful for a church where we, where we have true friendships. And yet, I also know most of you. I've gotten to know you. And I know that in your life, there are stories of pain from the past. And I know that today, you also have struggles that you're just kind of having to push through. And that as you think about tomorrow, there are a lot of things that tempt you to worry. And so if you were to evaluate your life, you are richly blessed, but there are also areas of your life that are far from perfect. I have a confession to make to you today. I'm a recovering perfectionist. I, at one point in my life, I thought everything had to be flawless to be right. Uh, then we had children, and I realized that that isn't possible. Uh, but, you know, over, over the years, I, I'm trying to get better with that and, and not always feel like everything has to be just perfect. And I am discovering that perfect moments often occur when God surprisingly brings imperfect people with imperfect perceptions into an unexplainably perfect yet imperfect reality. And you experience this too. It's that sweet feeling that you have whenever you hold that newborn baby, your son, your daughter, your grandchild. And you hold him in your arms and you look into his eyes and everything just feels perfect. Even though it was just minutes ago, when mom was crying in pain and mom and dad were a little upset because nothing had gone according to plan and yet here you are at this moment where the adopted child comes home where the newborn is in your arms and you're like everything is perfect it's that perfect moment when God brings two hearts that have been previously broken together and you find new love It's that perfect moment when you're sitting in worship and you didn't really expect it, but somewhere the Holy Spirit of God grabs your heart and you begin to feel emotions swell up inside you from deep within and you struggle to hold back the tears because you know the presence of God is on you. Our passage today speaks to God's divine ability to unite imperfect people into a perfect family. Uh, as we read through it, you'll, you'll see that it's a somewhat technical passage, so keep your Bibles open. We will journey through it together. But I think you'll see that God does a miraculous work within this church that He also does within our own church. In verse 11, the Bible says, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God 
in the world. Now, within the early church, there was a great divide. There was a divide between the Jewish people, those that we call the children of Israel, the focal people of the Old Testament, and the Gentile people. The Gentiles were everybody else. Everybody that wasn't Jewish were considered the Gentiles. Now, if you were Jewish, you had grown up going to the synagogue. You would often venture to the temple for the Passover feast. And so you saw the worship of God. You experienced it. You were taught the law in your home. You were taught the Old Testament and to live by it and to memorize it. You were taught to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. And you were considered an heir to the Old Testament covenants. Those promises that God had made to Jacob and to Abraham and to Moses and to David, you were considered to be the heir of the promise. And over the years within Hebrew society, uh, they had begun being prideful. They began puffing themselves up. We are the children of God. We are the heirs to the promise. We have the Old Testament law. And so they felt very, very prideful, and they even became very racist. They looked down on everybody who was not exactly like them, anybody that did not share their ethnicity. They looked down upon them. And so whenever they looked at Gentile people, they scornfully called them the uncircumcised, and they considered them to be excluded from the citizenship of Israel. They called them foreigners. They did not have promise in their life. And these Gentile people who had not experienced the truth of God, the worship of God, they were living their life without hope, and they were living their life without God. Well, in verse 13, the Bible says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. You see, a most interesting thing happened. The Messiah of Israel, the Anointed One, the one that the prophets spoke about, and we know Him to be Jesus Christ, He came and dwelt among us, the story of Christmas. But He didn't just live among us, He died for us. And he shed his blood, and in the process, he brought near to God people that at one time were alienated from God. He brought near to God people that at one time did not know anything about God, people that were considered foreigners. He brought near to God the Gentile people. And in Jesus, there was established a new spiritual reality, prideful perfectionism was scorned, and humble hearts were exalted. In Jesus, the excluded became the included. In Jesus, the foreigner became the heir. In Jesus, the unloved became the beloved. In verse 14, the Scriptures say, For He, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups one. Now he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, that Jesus, the peace, made both of these groups one, and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility 
in his flesh. You see, God did something that only God can do. He brought peace to centuries of conflict. He united the Jews and the Gentiles, and he tore down the wall of hostility. You say, Lash, how in the world did God bring this peace? Well, there was no treaty signed. There was no election held. No armies battled for this peace. No, God did this, according to verse 14, in His flesh. God sent His Son, that which we celebrate here at Christmas. And God came and dwelt among us. And ultimately, God died on the cross for our sins. And Jesus rose again so that you and I and any man, any woman, any boy, any girl might have eternal life, forgiveness, and be adopted into the family of God for all eternity through Christ. Verse 15 says, He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. Now, when we think of the law, we tend to think of the United States Constitution and the various laws of the land. But whenever you're reading the New Testament and you come across that word law, it's generally referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's called the Old Testament law. And there were regulations, various uh, elements of right and wrong that God had laid down in the law. And in verse 15, it says he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that... He might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. Now, the Old Testament law was not bad. We shouldn't view the Old Testament as archaic or bad in any way. It, it is good, it was good, but it had become a dividing wall, particularly between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews thought that they had God's favor because they followed the commands and the regulations of the Old Testament law. They thought they had God's favor because they had memorized the scriptures and they had received various awards and they had passed Sunday school and they had come to synagogue every week and they had listened to Christian music and they ventured to the temple every year for Passover and because of all these things that they knew and they did, they thought that earned them God's favor. Anytime you think that your good behavior earns God's favor or earns God's love and grace, you have fallen into a theological trap known as legalism. God does not love you for your loveliness. He loves you because you are a believer in Christ, and He loves you because Christ has shed His blood for you and done something for you that you could never do on your own. He loves you through His grace. You say, well, then, Lash, 
Why is it that I come to church, read my Bible, give generously, serve faithfully? Why is it that I memorize the Scriptures? And why is it that I sing praises to God and do all these things for God? You do all these things because you love God as well. And because God loves you, you want to express your love to God by living your life for Him as a living sacrifice to Him. Well, the Jewish people had fallen into legalism. And they had become prideful. And they began thinking that they were better than everybody else. And they looked down on the Gentiles because they said the Gentiles didn't even know what the law was. But then Jesus comes onto the scene. And we have the cross. When Jesus was crucified, the hostility between pride and And ignorance was also crucified. You see, the cross pours contempt on my pride, revealing my insatiable imperfections while simultaneously driving me to faith where my imperfections are exchanged for Christ's perishing perfection. And God does something for me at the cross that I could never do on my own. In verse 17, the story continues. Paul says, When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now remember, he's building on this relationship between the Jews and the Gentile. And he says, when Jesus came, he proclaimed the good news, the gospel, the peace of God is available to those who are far away and it's available to those who are near. To both the Jew and the Gentile, salvation is here. In verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Frequently, Right here where I am standing, new families are formed. In fact, just eight days ago, a couple from our church, Robert and Rosalind Kale, they stood right here, right here where this mat is, and they exchanged holy vows to one another, and they exchanged rings, and Robert was really happy whenever I told him that he could kiss the bride, and family and friends gathered And they celebrated and they watched this couple that they had lived life with uh, exchange these vows and become united in marriage. One of the traditions that we often have in America is a unity candle. How many of you had a unity candle at your wedding? Well, if you're not familiar with a unity candle, you'll have two small candles or two thin candles. And in the middle, there's generally a thicker candle. And the imagery is seen that at the beginning of the ceremony, a representative from each family, the bride's family and the groom's family, will come and light one of those thin candles. And those candles will burn during the entire ceremony. After the bride and groom have exchanged vows, they will go over to the unity candle and they will light the candle in the center and they will blow out the two flames that have been lit by their families. You say, well, what are they symbolizing there? 
they are symbolizing that both the bride and groom have come from different backgrounds, that they both were raised in different families, but now, as they have exchanged these vows to one another, they have established a new family at that moment, that God has put together a new family through their love and through His power. As Christians, we believe that family is not an accident, that it was God who established marriage. We believe that it is God who established family, that it is through marriage that we express sexual intimacy. It is through intimacy that new life begins, and it is within a family that children are to be raised. And if the family is strong, if marriages are strong, if we would honor God in our sexual practices, you find that the society and the communities are strong. And whenever two people come together in marriage, they establish a new family. Well, often in Scripture, the church is called a family. And through Jesus, God established a new family. And He brought together those that had grown up near to God, the Jewish people, and those that had grown up, grown up far from God, the Gentile people. He brought together these people from different backgrounds, and He established a new family that we call the church. Verse 19, the Scriptures say, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Now, that's important for this church in Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians is written to a church, the church at Ephesus. And that church had a little bit of a low self-esteem. Because they were Gentile people, they often felt like that they weren't really included. And going all the way back to chapter 1, Paul goes out of his way to make sure that they know that before the foundations of the world, they were included in God's plan. That God had a purpose for them. That they were part of the divine family of God. And we as a church, the Murphy Road Baptist Church, We are a household of faith. And in this household of faith, some of you grew up in church. How many of you, like me, grew up in church? Yeah, I I started going to church nine months before I was born. I think I wrote my name for the first time in macaroni in children's church. You know, I mean, church was just something that I've always known. But there are others that... You came to Christ maybe later on in life, and so you didn't grow up in church, and and that's not your farthest back childhood memories, but you're now a part of the church. You're a believer in Christ. And so we come to this household of faith with different backgrounds. There are some in our family that have a net worth in the millions. There are some in our family that have a net worth that has a minus sign in front of it. (laughs) But we're all together in one family. There are some in this room that were blessed with such an intellect that you graduated summa cum laude. And there are other people in this room that you graduated summa cum lucky. 
You were barely able to get out of school. But we have to remember that the cross is a place where the young and the old, where the rich and the poor, where the citizen and the immigrant, where the leader and the outcast all stand on level ground. And God surprisingly brings imperfect people with imperfect perceptions into an unexplainably perfect yet imperfect reality that we call church. And I just want to say to you this morning, I am thankful for this church because it is in this church that I experience my imperfect, perfect family. And I enjoy living life with you. In verse 20, Paul gives us some examples of what life in the household of faith is supposed to look like. He says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, the whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, before we pray and we sing and we have our time of giving, there are four prayers that I have for our church based upon these verses. Those of you that are part of Murphy Road, part of this family, I hope that you take these prayers to heart. The first is that Jesus will always be our cornerstone. Now, I'm not a handy manny. I'm not very good at building things or fixing things. I'm trying to learn, and I'm studying at Google, trying to learn more about how to fix things. And so I consulted Google as to what a cornerstone is. And a cornerstone is the first stone set in a masonry foundation. Now, it's very important because all other stones are set in reference to the cornerstone. So ultimately, it determines the position of the entire building. And so whenever we think of the church as a house, our cornerstone is to be Jesus Christ. He is the one that all other stones are set in reference to. And he is the one that determines the position of the entire building. We always must be anchored to the cross. We must never leave from the truths of the cross because Jesus is our cornerstone. And I pray that that will always be. Now, secondly, I pray that the foundation of our church will always be built on the Word of God. In verse 20, it says that the household of faith was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And I think about the prophets of the Old Testament. I think about the apostles of the New Testament who wrote for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. And I want our church to be built on the Word of God. That's why I have a commitment to you that every week when we gather for worship, we will open the Bible and we will preach through the Bible. We will study Scripture. 
We will let it beat us up sometimes, change us, mold us. I will not preach to you self-help with a twist of Jesus. I will preach to you the Word of God, because as a church, we must be based on the Word of God. At some point in your life as a Christian, and at some point in the life of a church, they must decide what is it that we believe about the Word of God. And I believe it is to be our foundation. Whenever we find ourselves wondering what position to take, we need to ask ourselves the question, what has God said on the matter? What have Scripture said about it? Because Scriptures become our authority for faith and practice. And I am so thrilled whenever I see you studying the Word of God. And I pray that as an individual that you will spend time every day in the Word of God, that as a family you will build your foundation on the Word of God. Those of you that have children in your home, that you will raise them based upon the principles of the Word of God because that becomes foundational for who you are. If we build our church on parties, programs, and personalities, the foundation will eventually crumble. But churches built on the Word of God stand strong. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the wise man and the foolish man. Do you remember the story in the Sermon on the Mount? The wise man built his house upon the what? Rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Everything looked pretty similar. They both had successful lives, successful families. They probably lived within the same community because when it rained on one, it rained on the other. And everything seemed to be uh, in good accord. Everything seemed to be going well. But then how does the story go? The rains came down and the floods came up. Remember the song? The rains came down and the... when you were a kid. Those of you that grew up in church remember that. Yeah. And the floods came up. Kind of like this weekend. The floods came up. And whenever the floods came up, the one who had built his house on the sand, his house collapsed. But the one who had built his house on the rock, his house stood firm. And the same thing is true for the household of faith. If we're built on superficial things, then when trials come, the house will collapse. But if we're built on the enduring principles of the Word of God, then when the storms come, we'll stand strong. Thirdly, I pray that we will understand that it is God who puts us together. And what this means is that the church is not mine, it's not yours, it's God. And I am always amazed at how God will surprisingly bring imperfect people with imperfect perceptions into an unexplainably perfect yet imperfect reality that we call our church family. And God has brought us here to this room. We all have different life stories. We have different gifts We come from different families, but God has brought us together and knit us together as a church. And God has plans for our church in particular, plans that He laid down before the foundations of the world to walk in His ways, good works that bring Him glory that we are to proclaim and live out as a church family. And then fourthly, I pray that we might grow into a family where the Spirit of God dwells. 
I pray that the Spirit of God is upon this church, that He's upon you, upon your family. I pray that you grow as a spiritual person, that you move beyond just cognitive exercises or just floating through life like the feather from Forrest Gump. I pray that you grow in depth spiritually and that the Spirit of Almighty God will be seen and felt in your life. I pray that as a church family, we will have moments like we had two weeks ago when we were singing together, I stand amazed in the presence after taking of the Lord's Supper. And I felt chills run through my body because the Holy Spirit of God was in this sanctuary. And I could hear in the voices as you sang the power of God. And we were a household of faith singing to God in the Spirit of God. And I pray that that will be a weekly, daily occurrence in our life that we will walk in God's Spirit. It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's cold. It's wet. The turkey is now gone. The extended family has gone home. And Romo is gone for the season. The world around us is filled with turmoil. The news stories are filled with death and depravity. If you look at the world, things are far from perfect. But in this room, in this room I gather with my imperfect and yet perfect family. And we worship a perfect Savior. And my soul is filled with love to my God, with love for you, and thanksgiving for the abundant blessings of God. We are a household of faith brought together through the divine power of God for His glory. And I am so glad that you are a part of this family. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. If you're here today, and today needs to be the day where you become a believer in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to come and see me during this next hymn. See me after the service. And let's talk about what it means to be a believer in Jesus so that you might leave here today knowing Christ as your own Lord and Savior. As we sing, you may feel led to pray. You can pray at your seat. It may be that you want to come and kneel here at the steps and pray to God and mark this Thanksgiving weekend as a special moment in your life as you express your gratitude to God. It could be that there's somebody that you want to go pray with. You might also just want to sing the hymn with our students as they lead us in worship. Just follow the Holy Spirit's guidance. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the depths of your love. And we thank you for the unifying power of the cross that brings us together as a household of faith. I thank you, Lord, that when we stand before the cross, we are on level ground and we do not stand before you in pride, but we bow before you in humility. And we thank you, Father, that you meet us with grace. 
that you raise us up and you use us in ways that we could never imagine through your power. And I pray, Father, that in this room we might have our best friends, that in this room there might be a deep, abiding love for one another, but a love that is grounded in our love for you. So I thank you for our church, and I thank you for this moment where we have the opportunity to express our gratitude and love to you. In Jesus' name, amen.